from St. Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Good morning, everybody. A little chilly out there today, huh? There's an old expression that there is nothing like a church fight. You ever heard that before? Maybe it's only priests that know this one. It's an old expression that there's nothing like a church fight. Yeah, I know we are in the middle of impeachment inquiries and whatever they're calling it, hearings and all these things, and you know, we've been here before. It's like a great big deja vu in my mind. But you know, even amidst the political theater of the past several weeks and months, even, even in the midst of all this political stuff that's going on, man, friends, there is nothing, nothing like a church fight. Amen? If you've been there, you know what I mean. Now, I have spent my entire adult life in the church. I've devoted, I should say, my entire adult life to the church. I had a career in the corporate world, did IT work, and actually loved it and enjoyed it, but I'm committed to serving the faith, the Catholic faith specifically. I love it. I eat, breathe, and sleep it. The faith, the Christianity is my passion because I believe, frankly, that Jesus is the Son of God and that what we proclaim is the most important message ever given. Still, <laughs> there's nothing like a church fight. And if you think about it, why are we surprised? I mean, on the one hand, from a purely psychological perspective, you know, people have a lot invested in their church, right? Whether it's their pastor or the community they belong to. And so you shouldn't be really all that surprised when people get agitated and there's acrimony in a church that it causes hurt feelings. I get that piece. And that's maybe part of why there's nothing like a church fight, but there's more. There's, not, there's a lot more to it, a variable that maybe you've never considered, but I want you to this morning, that Satan wants nothing more than to destroy what we are doing here. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy me, than to destroy you individually and corporately, to make us fearful and tentative and self-doubting. Satan wants nothing more than to sow discord and disharmony in the body of Christ, literally to chew us up and spit us out. You know, Peter uses the imagery of a lion in Scripture. Which is why I think there is in fact nothing like a church fight. Because a church fight is rooted in the demonic. Paul tells us this. I mean, you say, well, come on, Rodriguez, you're overreacting. But Paul says this very thing. And he's talking to the church. He says, look, he says, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, we fight. Let me rephrase that. He says that we don't fight against principalities and powers, political power. Paul writes, but we fight against spiritual forces and wickedness. Listen, to be perfectly blunt, in case I'm not being blunt enough, <laughs> the church is squarely faced head-on, arrayed against the legions of hell itself. There is nothing between this world and the demonic except for the church. That's us, friends. And so why are we surprised there's nothing like a church fight? Because it's a very fight for the existence of human souls. And so Paul, Paul knows this. Paul, as the consummate pastor, knows this. Any pastor knows this. 
if you're good. Paul was a pastor who planted churches all around the, the uh, ancient Near East, and he had one in particular in Thessalonica where they were engaged in a fight, in a church fight. And Paul says the following words. Listen to what he says again. Chapter 3, verse 13. He says, As for you, brothers, that means the church, as for you, friends, do not grow weary in doing good. So I'm going to look at two points today about this whole church fight, where it comes from, and what's the solution? What's it sourced, and why? And what do we do about it? Two points today I want to look at in Paul's epistle first. I'm going to look at point number one, which is that we as Christians are called to wait patiently upon the Lord's return. That's point one. We are called to wait for the Lord's return, point one. And then secondly, in the meantime, do the right thing. So we as Christians are called to wait for Christ's return with power and great glory. And then secondly, in the meantime, do the right thing. The first thing is this idea of waiting for Christ's return. You know, one of the... There's lots of fodder here, but one of the great ball drops in the contemporary church, one of the things that I think we have lost our vision over in the past 200 years or so, in the West anyway, is we have lost our focus, the contemporary church, we have lost our focus on the end times, the eschaton. And because we've given up on the end times and Christ's return, we dismiss it as fairy tale. I'll get to this in a second. Because we dismiss it, we focus on the now, either in one of two great big ways, an overwhelming focus on social justice for its own sake, or secondly, and I hate to say this, but it's true, I use an example of my favorite foil, Joel Olstein. I pick on him a lot, you know. Joel Olstein has a book called Your Best Life now! Wait a minute. Your best life now? I mean, only, only in the comforts of 21st century American Christianity could you say anything so absurd as, you can have your best life now! Nonsense! Most of the, if you look at Christian history, most of Christian history is spent not having your best life now, but it's spent avoiding being crucified or sawn in two or given up, as Jesus mentions, being thrown into prison and put before the authorities. Only in 21st century American Christianity, with this overwhelming wealth that we have, could you say something so absurd as your best life now? I mean... <laughs> Even today, even today, in 2019, nobody will ever tell you this. Do you know that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world? By a lot? No one ever tells you that, but go to the Sudan, right? Go to rural, go to anywhere in China. Go to Turkey, which used to be a Christian country, at least partly, not anymore. And tell the Christians there, give them a copy of Olstein's book. You can have your best life now. And they will laugh at you and tell you to pack your stuff and go back to Houston. Thank you very much. Because the church has never been focused on your best life now. That's absurd. If the best life is what we have now, brothers, let's just turn off the lights and go home. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about your best life now. Listen. It's about how you live your life now, waiting for Jesus to return. 
You know, Scripture is crystal clear about this over and over and over and over again. And in fact, we say it in our creed every single Sunday. And we'll say it in a minute. And he, Jesus, shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. You say it every week. So do I. In other words, Christians are called, listen, listen, listen. We are called to live our lives now through the lens of the expectation of Christ's return, what's to come. Because what Jesus tells us, either Jesus is a liar or he tells the truth. And if he tells the truth, this is what he says. That when he returns, the dead shall be resurrected. Talked about this last week. Evil will be judged. The world will be set to rights. Those who have chosen to pay for their own sins on their own will do so in hell. And those who have claimed Christ as their Lord and Savior, that he pays for their sins on their behalf, will join him in eternity in heaven. But we forget that, don't we? We forget it. I know I do. And so did the church in Thessalonica where Paul wrote this letter. They forgot. They'd forgotten. They took their eye off the ball. They focused on their best life now rather than on their life now with the context of the end of time. And, and like a lot of us, right, doubts begin to enter. Anybody here ever wonder, where is he? When's he coming back? Of course you have. The Thessalonians are just like you and me. We we are distracted by the now. We are distracted by the tyranny of the immediate. Maybe I need a plan B. You know, just in case. In case this whole Jesus thing is a fairy tale. And that was actually the problem that plagued the church at Thessalonica. People began to question if Jesus was coming back at all. Maybe I'd bet on the wrong horse, you know. Maybe, uh, Maybe I'd better rethink this whole thing. Maybe I need to have a plan B or a plan C. You know, Satan, again, loves to sow doubt, doesn't he? It's his job. That's what he does. Satan loves a church fight. He loves it. And the source of this dispute, I'm going to get to this in a minute, was what Paul calls idleness. It doesn't mean what you think. I'll get to that in a second. But the first thing I want to ask you is this. It's big. Pay attention. Do you live your life honestly? Do you live your life eagerly waiting for Jesus' return? Do you live your life focused on the end goal? I will confess to you, friends, amongst our little gathering this morning, that up until about 13 years ago, I didn't. I was a priest in Red Bank, New Jersey. I'd been through seminary. I loved Jesus. I believed the creed. I said it every week. I believed it, kind of. But this whole idea of the second coming of Jesus just seemed a little far-fetched to me. I mean, after all, it's been a while, right? We've been waiting for a while, Jesus, you know, excuse me, but did we get this show on the road kind of thing in my mind? That was where I was until I met a woman named Bertha Hollick. Bertha Hollick, I've mentioned her before, Bertha Hollick was a giant spiritually. She's only about this tall in reality, maybe 75 pounds soaking wet. Bertha Hollick was a 90-year-old woman whose husband was suffering from Parkinson's disease and dementia and so forth. And, and I would go to meet with her, and we would pray. And this changed my life, actually. 
They were, this little group of people were so focused on Christ's return that when I would pray with them, it literally changed me. Here's how it went. I would pray with Bertha Halleck. We would pray. I'd lay hands on her husband, bring them communion. We would pray together. Kathy remembers her. And we would pray. And after every single prayer, Bertha Halleck, without fail, would say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Every single time. Every single time I'd pray with her, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I thought, What's wrong with her? Honestly, what, what, what in the world is she talking about? I had no idea. Every single day she would pray that. Her entire life was grounded in that worldview, this expectation, this eager waiting for Christ's return every single time. And finally I, I asked her, I said, Bertha, you know, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yeah, I, I hear you, but do you really think he's gonna? I mean, it's been 2015 years at that point or whatever it was. And she said something to me which totally rattled my cage, changed my world, turned my thinking completely upside down. Want to hear what she said? You guys awake? <laughs> I said, Bertha, okay. Come on, Jesus, come quickly. I get it. I said, do you really think Jesus could come back at any moment? This is what she said to me. She said, Father, you will meet Jesus in your lifetime. And I said, what? And she said, you asked me, will he, will, you, will he come back? And I said to you, you will meet Jesus in your lifetime. You know what? She's right. I mean, think about it. Think about it like this. No matter when Christ returns, he promises us that he will. Either he's a liar or tells the truth. So we've got to reconcile that in your mind. But if he tells the truth, which he does, and he says that he is returning, no matter when he returns, whether it's 2030 or 2020 or today, I guarantee you with 100% certainty that you will meet Jesus in your lifetime, period. Bertha Hollick was right. She was right. And you know, here I am, a 51-year-old, soon-to-be 51-year-old man, going to get ahead of myself here, but you know, I've got maybe 40 years ahead of me, who knows? That could change on a dime. There's a, there's a country song, a little segue here, country song by a guy named Tim McGraw. I'm not a big country guy, but if it comes on the radio, I'll listen to it if it's something which appeals to me. He wrote a song, Tim McGraw wrote a song called Live Like You Were Dying. It's about a guy, he's a 40-year-old guy, you know, he's a corporate guy, he's finally made his money, he's got, he's, got a life, he's got life by the tail, right? And he gets diagnosed with cancer. And he, he realizes that now his mortality is staring him in the face. All the plans he'd had for his life now were kind of moot. And the song continues on, Live Like You Were Dying, and he says, you know, I learned to love deeper. I'm not going to sing it to you. <laughs> I spoke sweeter. I gave forgiveness like I'd been that I'd been denying. Someday I hope you have the chance to live, listen, like you were dying. Now, how do you live? Let's go back to the question. Do you live life eagerly waiting for Jesus' return? Do you live your life with the end goal in mind, friends? Consider it. Someday you and I will have to stand before the throne of God and give him an account of the life we have lived. Are you ready? Are you eager? So here's the point one. I'm going to get on the rest of it in a second. But point one is, do you honestly wait patiently and eagerly for the Lord's return? 
the entire Christian life is based upon it because Christ sets all things to rights. Evil is vindicated. Life will be the way you want it to be. In the meantime, Paul says, this is my second point, in the meantime, and he's writing this to the Thessalonian church, this is why I'm telling you, in the meantime, Paul says, do the right thing. Here's what he says. Paul taught the Thessalonians the very same thing that I'm teaching you now. He didn't mention Tim McGraw or country music or Joel Olstein, but he was constantly reminding his people as a good pastor of the importance of Christ's second coming. But you know, not everybody wants to hear that. And Paul had a church fight on his hand. Now, if you look at Paul, Paul is addressing his letter to this group of Christians there, and he, he says to them, watch out for those who are idle, I-D-L-E. Now, that word idle, the Greek word is the word um, atikos, and it's a very hard word to translate, but it doesn't necessarily mean lazy or, you know, couch potato. What it means, what it means is, listen to this closely, it means someone, Paul says, look out, church, for those who are living in opposition to good order. In other words, look out for those who are defiant. Look out for those who these people are telling you that not to wait for Christ's return, but to have your best life now. Look out for him, Paul says. Paul's describing the sides in this church fight, but notice something absolutely critical, friends. He says that there's someone in your congregation who refuses to listen to what is right, who is causing gossip, and dissension, and discontent, and disorder. Somebody who is, refuses to hear the truth, who refuses to abide by the, the context of the Christian walk, Paul says, have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed, but, here's the key, big important point. Verse 15, Paul says, don't not regard him as an enemy, but warn, listen, warn him as a brother. Look, then and now, the church in Thessalonica or the church in Vera Beach, friends, we are called to be a family in Christ, right? You call a priest father, we call each other brother and sister, that's a family. Those are familiar terms. And as a family, we are to be accountable to and for one another. We are to be accountable to and for one another. If a fellow Christian falls, we don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't form parking lot communities. We don't leave anonymous notes in the friendship forums. Just saying. Paul says, listen, we're, we're all on the same team here. We're waiting for Christ's return. For God's sake, do the right thing. To be willing, Paul says, be willing as brothers and sisters to be accountable to one another. To hold, and also be willing to hold each other accountable. Just like Little Bertha Hollick, all four foot eight of her, did to me. She held me accountable. Not because she didn't love me, but because she did. Friends, I am your pastor. I am the rector of this parish. Father Gritter and Father Switz, they assist me, they help me. They are very fine men who do an amazing job. But I want you to consider this. As the family of God, that you are ministers too. Are you really willing, are you really willing to be accountable to those people in this congregation? Are you willing to be accountable to those whom you call brother and sister? Are you willing to hold others accountable whom you call brother and sister? You know why? There's nothing like a church fight. But if the church is healthy and flourishing, 
if we are holding each other accountable in love as brothers and sisters, if we do the right thing until Christ returns, then guess what? That church fight will never materialize because we have not allowed Satan to get a foothold. We refuse to give in. So friends, let us eagerly wait for Jesus' return when he will set the world to rights and put all things back to the way they should be. Let us wait eagerly, expectantly. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Say that to yourself when you get up in the morning. It'll change your life. But as we wait, let us also remember Paul's really important counsel and advice. Let us not grow weary. In the meantime, let us not grow weary in doing good. Shall we pray, Father, we are reminded today to wait joyfully and patiently for the return of your Son, which will happen for each one of us in our own lifetime. In the meantime, give us strength and courage to not grow weary in doing good, but to press on as the body of Christ alongside our brothers and sisters as, even, as we all wait together for his return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.